Hi, I'm Brian Strauss, co-founder of Demand Collective and host of the Collective Wisdom podcast. Collective Wisdom is a demand generation podcast brought to you by Demand Collective, a hyper-vetted community of demand gen and revenue marketers. Apply to join online at demandcollective.io. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Collective Wisdom by Demand Collective. Today, I'm joined by Michael Roberts, fractional demand gen leader for Boost My Email, Hudson RPO, and Immersa. Michael has over nine years of marketing experience across a variety of specializations, including demand gen, marketing operations, and lifecycle marketing. His experience has taken him through a diverse set of verticals with an emphasis on revenue and operational impact on businesses. Thanks for joining us, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I loved your. Um, I saw a few weeks ago you posted a costume of Professor Oak. <laughs> yes, that that hit for me. I don't know about you, but I was like a first gen Pokemon person, so the yeah, first right fifty was my jam. Yeah, uh, it was something I've been wanting to do like for a few years now, but uh, mm-hmm. never like been adult enough to plan ahead and like get prepared or whatever. So finally, um, in August. I, I like remembered I wanted to do it. And so I was like, oh, I got to find the Pokemon cards to do it. So like on like a local marketplace here, just found a dude that was willing to sell a thousand of them, yeah. picked them up, put the costume together and made it happen. So I, yeah, I had like music in the front, like all like the Pokemon music and yeah. kids had to choose their like starter Pokemon and John. It, it was fun. Oh yeah. Some kids were pretty amped about it. They were excited. Oh, I'd have been young. You know, 10 year old Brian would have been hyped for sure. Um, so maybe, uh, if you could walk us through a little bit of your journey as a marketer, you know, so like I saw you originally started off kind of before you got into marketing, you started off doing a bunch of different stuff. Like you were a bank teller, you worked as a counselor at a youth camp, you, um, a lot of, uh, what, and then uh, a music instructor as well. So how does someone have like a range of things like that end up into such a specialized role like marketing and you've been doing it for nine plus years now, right? Yep. Your first role was like a marketing intern. Yep. What does that look like? Yeah. So the story, um, uh, so I even go back like, so when I got home from serving a church mission in Italy, I lived in Italy for two years and then came home. And then that's when I started college, but I had no idea. Um, no idea what I wanted to do. My part of my problem was I liked everything. And so everything was really interesting to me. And so, you know, that experience probably actually shows a little bit of that. So I did youth camp, like a youth counseling thing that first summer I was back. Um, <clears throat> and then just toyed around, man. I like, I've, I probably visited every school at the university of Utah to talk to like the career counselors there. I mean, I'm talking about like physical therapy, music composition, photography, business education like i swear i went into every building um i could never like choose so spent time in generals and uh kind of bounced back and forth and ultimately being unable to make a choice through like a business class um landed on accounting and because the job prospects were good i'm like well if i can't make a choice you know they say that this is a good job. And so I'll head that way. And so ended up in the business school and, uh, 
there was a professor, there was like, they, they made you take this like intro to business philosophy class where you went through a bunch of like philosopher stuff, like typically what you would think is more religious stuff, but like all of their views on business. And, um, he made this like offhanded comment, a a kid had asked a question and he was like, and they ended up comparing, um, accounting versus marketing. Mm -hmm. And the professor was like, look, if you're into puzzles, I think accounting is a great fit for you. But if you would rather play risk, excuse me, risk, (laughs) then marketing is probably a better choice. And I was like, I was just sitting there. I'm like, well, freak, I'd way rather play risk than do a puzzle all day long. So I made sure I got in a marketing course the next semester um, and liked it more enough that I was like, okay, I'd rather make this switch. It seems more fun. And uh, the rest is history. Like I just stuck there and, Ended up finding internships and getting into it. And that's how it, that's how, that's essentially how the path started was just this offhanded comment in a business class about games. That's so. an amazing origin story. I, I think, uh, I often think back to, to pivotal moments like that where I realized all it took was, you know, this 15 second experience that like altered the course of life. Yeah. You know? That's amazing. Yeah, also, that I love hundred percent true. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that professor has no idea. He was kind of a quirky dude too. Like, yeah. but like, changed changed everything for me. So I'm grateful. It's been good. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So I've I've seen you on LinkedIn. You've described yourself as a life cycle marketer, and the yep. definition a lot like growth marketing, demand gen. These all seem to differ based on who you ask, what the company is. How do you currently define that? Yeah, I look at it as customer engagement. So essentially, email is a primary channel. When you're looking at like SaaS companies, in-product notifications is another channel that you can use. Um, Ecom, you would probably look at SMS as well. But on the business side, it just doesn't make sense. So I don't really mess with SMS. It's primarily email and in-app notifications. Um, And building the programs and the flows that... uh, make sense to keep those customers engaged in that channel, right? There's a lot of content involved with it. So while I am um while I'm pretty well versed in platforms like Customer.io and HubSpot, like I have to be. Yeah. I, I I kind of pride myself a little bit more on the program content strategic side of it. Like getting into buyer behavior, um what consumers might want to expect from brands when they sign up for a free trial or um, start a freemium account and then what that engagement looks like. And, you know, I, I put all of those communications into essentially four buckets. When you're looking at like a software lens, it's easiest to look at it for me from a software lens Um, activation, right? I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get them to see value and use a product conversion. So translating that into revenue transactional stuff which is boring but necessary right and then uh just content engagement stuff beyond that that keeps them keep people involved so um programs in all those four buckets to try and um you know maintain brand awareness build trust and equity with people so that uh when they're ready to convert or see value that we can push them down that road yeah yeah what do you feel like is you know you mentioned those stages when you take on a new client, like right now you're you're doing fractional work for several organizations. Yeah. When you join a team, where do you see the biggest gaps in those stages? Um, so 
I always try and focus first on activation and revenue. Typically, let, let's let's take like a software company. Yeah. The, the easiest way to look at first is activation because there's a, usually a few gaps um, that are hard to figure out that really influence what is the, like what I do with those programs. So um, activation is usually where I'll look at first. I'll look at existing programs. So like, if, let's say you can sign up for a freemium account. Um, I look, I try and understand, um, I, like I have to dig into a bit of product analytics to understand like what uh, is are the key value pieces? Like what are we trying to drive people to do? I question those two, right? Like um, if you're a company that has well-defined like um, product milestones, like aha moments, setup moments, habit moments, that helps. A lot of times those definitions aren't clearly defined though and yeah. um, pretty ambiguous. So we're not really sure like what, what really drives people to see value or when that aha moment is. So there's a bit of discovery and um, some estimating to figure out what that is. And then as you look at those programs, usually there's misalignment, right? Like usually there's some kind of misalignment that we're delivering stuff that they wouldn't expect to. We're promoting features beyond like use cases or problems that customers might have. And then as I dive into that in the middle of it, usually what I actually find is simple, just email best practice updates that need to happen that immediately just like improve the outcomes of it. those existing programs, albeit they might have issues themselves. Right. Right. And so I, I tend to try and make that happen. I dig into the programs. I, I while I'm learning kind of like the bigger strategic gaps, I identify quick wins and something as simple as like, look, you've got this massive banner on your, on one of your emails that doesn't really communicate anything. Let's take it out. It brings the CTA above the fold and it yeah. doubles your click-through rate, right? Little stuff like that, just intentional things that you can change. Um, and clients like that because like they want quick impact, especially as right. a contractor, right? Like you're you're a little, you don't have, um, you don't have as much grace in onboarding and getting up to speed. Yeah. And I feel that pressure. So I like to try and make some kind of impact within the first seven days of some sort that kind of proves that like, okay, look, where well, there's so much opportunity we can make here. There were quick wins. Let's get those out of the way so that we can focus on like the longer term stuff. That's a, that's an impressive turnaround. Seven days for your first sort of like measurable impact is uh, that's a, that's a short time to, to make changes like that as a uh, solopreneur, right? That's the sort of topic I see all over LinkedIn that I'm sure you're saying too. people yeah. sort of, I think, uh, they don't, there's a, a a gilded nature to how LinkedIn seems to describe it, right? How do you feel in terms of what's a realistic expectation for taking on these fractional roles? So uh, I don't consider myself a solopreneur. Mm. I don't consider myself an entrepreneur at all. Um, mm. And that goes back to actually when I started this thing, how I had to position it for myself in order to take the jump, I guess you could say. Yeah. So uh, I got laid off 13, 14 months ago. So September of last year, got laid off uh, for my W-2. Uh, leading up to that point, though, I had started take, I, I was I was always interested in like the contractor, solopreneur type um, life and work. Yeah. So I was starting to like take steps there, like take on side projects, just get feelers out there. 
And so when I got laid off, I got four weeks of severance and I had a project already, which essentially gave me eight weeks worth of runway of like money could stay the exact same and nothing, there's no pressure. Mm -hmm. And so realizing, Hey, I got like eight weeks. What can I make of it? So rather than like starting a business, my view was like, can I extend this runway to 10? Can I extend it to 12, 20? Mm -hmm. So my goal was always just extend runway. I was going to keep my old salary and just like pay myself the same and see if I could extend it. Um, and I, I was able to do it. I was able to just find work to like extend the runway. And so I had to do all the like normal things of technically setting up a built business with like, you know, the state and federal and get an accountant and all that stuff. But, um, I still view it as like, uh, I've, I've identified and it's taken a year or two to niche down into um, just life cycle. When I first started out, it was broader demand gen. Yeah. Um, and as I continue the work, I, I found where I like delivered value the fastest for clients chose down to chose to niche on that. And um, what it's then become is my, I, I kind of view it as like, I'm able to, do the production of a full-time employee at half third of the time because I'm so efficient and experienced. So it allows me to essentially get two, three jobs, right? I mean, to like three clients, I'm not looking to build an agency. I'm not looking to be this great business mind really, right? Like I'm trying to um, do really good work, provide for my family at like a great level. And then just take opportunities as it comes. So really, really, really like I, I, there's a lot of like LinkedIn frameworks and like all this great strategy and stuff. I didn't, I didn't build it that way. Mine was very loose, very unknown, very just like, let's just see if we can get past the next month. And, um, it's worked out. Yeah. 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 The day by day. That's, uh, totally get that. Any hard lessons you learned along, uh, along the way? Um, I, I, the unknown is hard, right? Like, I think that's why, um, people might be, you know, I've had people say like, oh man, I could never do what you did. Right. And when I look back on my own experience, like if I didn't have those eight weeks of runway, I wouldn't do what I did. Yeah. I was very fortunate. And so, um, I think my view and I, I was, I've been very blessed that um, opportunities have been um, sufficient enough to like meet my needs. And looking back on back on that, I think that's because of prep work years in the making before it even happened. Um, so I started getting involved pretty heavily on LinkedIn, posting, commenting, all that kind of stuff <clears throat> about the start of the pandemic. Because when the pandemic hit. Um, I remember my old boss at the, when I first actually started at the startup, he made this offhanded comment of like, hey, if this doesn't work out, I'm not too worried because I have a solid safety net of a network that would help me find my next place. And yeah. when the pandemic hit, I realized like, oh shoot, if I get laid off, cause all this is unknown, I'm stuck to the resume stack and the resume stack is going to be huge with a lot of other people. I don't want to be stuck to the resume stack anymore. And so I just, you know, committed to be more active, trying to build relationships and stuff. And um, without knowing what the goal, uh, simply the goal of being like, hopefully it leads to opportunities. I don't know what kind, I don't know what it'll lead to, but I know everybody says networking is what you got to do. Yeah. And 
but like, so that, that's a two and a half year prep thing. I had that going for two and a half years with no dollar one because of it. Yeah. Up until I had to use it. And then when I had to use it, I had two and a half years worth of momentum. And, you know, I'm not viral. I have less than 10,000 followers. I, my posts get maybe 25, you know, I can get up to maybe the eighties if I do really well, but mm-hmm. 10 to 25, you know, reactions. So nothing, nothing spectacular, rather, you know, unnoticed, but it's enough still to like make it work, which is yeah you know, is motivating. And I think for anybody, whether you're trying to start a solo thing or whether you're just looking for opportunities as a new W2, like there's so much benefit from just increasing the number and depth of relationships you have that um, like opportunities will just end up coming. Like it, it, it'll, they have to, like, there's no yeah. other way. Yeah. I tell every young professional I talk to, they, who ask for advice, they kind of go like, what, like, what do you do? I go LinkedIn, get on there, meet, like, don't even like just extend the network, get involved in your space that you want to be a part of, become a voice. Don't pretend to be an expert that you're not, if you aren't, you know, but like sincerity, authenticity, and asking the right questions goes so far. And I know LinkedIn has like legitimately changed my life in terms of the opportunities it's presented. So I totally relate to you there. Yeah. And it can be beyond just LinkedIn, right? Maybe there's other social channels that work for you. Maybe there's like, um, I don't, you know, there's no single way it was LinkedIn for me too. Right. And I don't have great followings on any other channel Mm. all like, which, you know, is high risk in the sense of like, like at the beginning, actually, when I got laid off, I had a sales nav account, lost it, but continued sort of my like same sort of aggressive outreach and messaging and stuff. LinkedIn shut me down. Like, suspended my account for several days and it happened four or five times oh man and so i'm starting to start this like trying to start this business and five clients and my whole network is predicated just on this social channel and it got taken away like um so i had to buy into sales nav and it's like worth it to me but um i'm not you know linkedin can be a place there's you know all the other social networks and there's other ways to do it too you know, yeah. in-person stuff that I think the point is just like where whatever industry you're in, where do people live? Where do they communicate? Just be there. Just be yeah. a part of it. Be helpful. And then it'll pan out. What from in your day to day? Yeah. What do you find yourself sort of most challenged with? And then how do you challenge yourself to push through that? Um, I, I always question my um, ability, not ability the reality on like how much impact I'm driving mm-hmm. like every day. Um, and I think that's a good thing. It, it keeps me executing. Um, it, it's a healthy pressure to make sure I'm doing good work. Um, and even when my clients tell me like, Oh dude, you're amazing. I hope I can keep you forever. Or like, like this is phenomenal work. I like all in deep inside. I'm like, but uh, like it, you know, it could be more like maybe it's not enough. Right. Um, so that's like just emotionally just a challenge. I felt like I've had to deal with because, you know, like it not to be like it's not depression or anything, but it's just like making sure that like um, I am delivering good work. I think just the pressure to do that on myself is high. And 
because uh, I, I want I want my I want to succeed. I want my client, and in order for me to succeed, my clients have to succeed, and there's got to be like legitimate impact there, right? Right. And if I can't, um, if I can't build it, and I'm learning now too, if I can't communicate it, um, there might be, you know, there's some difficulties, and so I'm kind of working through that. I think that's a challenge right now. I'm just making sure that, um. Like I believe the impacts there, learning how to communicate it, believe it myself, and then but maintain it is yeah one thing I'm working on still. Yeah, and I mean that's such a difficult thing, and it goes beyond uh, you know I'm not going to dig into attribution there, but like the con the idea of marketing's tangible and intangible impact, right? And like how much of it I think like a brand search campaign and paid media is a great example of how much of it was actually captured by the program versus how much of it was going to happen anyways. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, as a contractor, I feel the pressure that like ROI is more of a like top of mind for my clients regarding me more than it is for like a W2 employee, right? Like I never sat down as a W2 employee with like a boss or c-suite person and they like looked at your salary and like okay so it looks like you're making eighty five thousand a year and we you know prove that you're 3x your worth and that you drove you know like yeah uh two hundred and forty thousand worth of revenue like people don't you don't come across it like that and so um the the attribution's tough the and there's no great answers and you know there's tons of opinions online about it. Um, and, and that's why I, I think for me, I've banked on a couple things. I look for, I look for indicators. So like, I, I'm actually not a believer in vanity metrics anymore. I don't think, mm -hmm. um, I was a big believer, uh, believer, big hater of them for a long time until we got so far past the, to like only focusing on revenue Yeah, that I was like, wait, this other stuff kind of matters a little bit. Yeah. And, and so the only the only place it gets into vanity is if you don't contextualize it within the broader scope of everything going on, right? So if like as an email marketer, I the only thing I report on is open rates. And I tell my client, hey, look, I moved open rates from 25 to 30. And look, it's success. Then, then there's like a little bit of an issue, like even though it's a good thing. But if I tell the story of why and how it you know, maybe we increased open rates and volume of email sent, right? Which means we reached X percent number of more like ideal customers that then leads, you know, to some downstream stuff that is ambiguous, a little cloudy, but you can tell the story that nothing's vanity anymore. Like driving up click-through rates, driving low open rates, it's all super important. And that's like what my job is to do. Yeah. And so... You know, I just look for indicators. I try and tell a story, and um, and then outside of that, I just I just bank on output, right? Like if you're in, a little bit intentional, if you can just outperform in execution and output. I don't know about you in your career, but like I, dozens of times, I've run into people where they're like, you know, really successful or making a lot of money or leadership, and you're like, what do you even do? Like what what like <sighs> how are you still here? Yeah. So that's that's actually motivating, right? That you can you can really make an impact in organizations by banking on output. Make sure to do a little bit of intention behind it, right? Don't just spray and pray type thing. That's obvious. 
but if you can if you can figure out workflows and process to just be like uh really effective at your job i think people are going to love you right like they're going to love the work you do they're going to love they're going to have greater trust or faith in the long term outcomes that you're trying to drive and if it doesn't work out like at least you're a hard worker you tried you did a lot of good momentum and sometimes there's other factors right it's just how it works so yeah yeah it, that's a that's a great perspective to have especially around being mindful and intentional and deliberate in your uh your effort and your output um in terms of that you recently said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure you talked about the value of deliverability and email yep. marketing in terms of in terms of prevention, how do you see teams and just tying this back to, you know, being uh, intentional with your output? How do you see teams preparing for a changing email landscape with like the rise of legislative changes in privacy around like uh, California and other states sort of starting to mirror uh, consent laws in other countries? Yeah, well, the big change coming right now is Google's and Yahoo's announcement on like stricter spam complaint compliance. Yeah. So um it's interesting because in the rest of the world, largely it has been legislative or government force regulations trying to um, make uh, businesses be more intentional with their marketing. Now it's coming from the enterprise side, right? Vendors that are going to be enforcing this on a stricter level. Um, so I, I think there's just, I think, as far as like what teams are doing to prepare for it, those that are aware that it's coming, I think are starting to realize that like, okay, um, like, I, I don't know if I can buy the list anymore. Right. We've lived in the U S we could buy lists. It was fine. You know, inbox placement was lower than everywhere else in the world, but like, it doesn't matter because you can like 10 X the list build as of anybody else. And nobody cares. Yeah. Well, now people are going to care a little bit. And um, it will be, I, you know, I don't know if largely people will be prepared when um, the changes happen in February, but by March or April, depending on how strict Google and Yahoo are in their enforcement, then there, it'll be interesting to see, like, if, if there are some big name brands who get their IP ranges or domains, um, throttled and all of a sudden their deliverability tanks and they go from you know 20 18 open rates down to four because no nothing's getting in the inbox anymore mm -hmm. suddenly it's going to be like oh shoot we this we should have done this now we have to warm up a new domain stuff like that um yeah. and i would imagine if that happens stories will get out hopefully that like all this happened and it'll probably come through agencies, right? Agencies working with clients and their clients got pinged and they're like, Oh crap, this actually happened. And they can anonymously share that some of their clients experienced this. And then those stories get out. Right. So, you know, the, the, all the tactics to prepare for that aren't um, really new. Uh, it's the whole inbound methodology, opt-in maintaining a healthy list, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just that the urgency to implement it will probably rise um, when people start feeling the pain. So we'll see. Yeah. 
Email is a uh, email is a tough cookie because when it's done really, really well, it can be one of the most effective channels out there. But when it's done with a disregard for compliance, with a disregard for intent, then it can be one of the most damaging channels to your brand. Yeah. Uh, um, so you can't with, take it back. That's you, part of the problem too, right? Right. Social media managers, you can post and then you can go back and edit. You can delete the thing, whatever. When I hit that send to 220,000 people, like it's gone once it's gone. So. Yeah. Do you ever, uh, you ever get the jitters before a big send? Oh man. Every time. Like, every time it still goes, hits? Yeah. It's like 10 years in. Like <laughs> I still, I'm always like, should I check this? Should I like, ah, there's probably a typo somewhere or like, I probably, I always, every time I always second guess the quality because I'm like yeah. worried I'm going to send something out that I messed up. Yeah. I used to work with a product marketing director who every time we'd send an email to like half a million people, she'd have to close her eyes and go, I can't look and turn around. And lo and behold, you always find like a a double space somewhere or missing comma or something. And there's always the executive goes, we've got to send an error message out. Let everyone know there's an issue. You know, how do you, how do you handle and de-escalate in situations like that? Well, I just sit here kind of sweating after I hit send and then it's like (laughs) processing for a while. And then I look, I just honestly kind of like just sit and watch like the right off the bat rates. Um, not that those even necessarily like indicate anything. Um, it's just like I have this like nightmare that I'm going to hit send to like some massive list and then it's going to be like, oh, you got like a 0.2% open rate, which has never happened, by the way. But like um, <laughs> that, like the data will just like the report just like won't go like the numbers won't go up and I'll just be sitting there. The numbers won't go up and I can't do anything about it. So that's a nightmare that I have um, that, you know, like, like once it's done, you can't do anything about it. And so that's why the prevention and like prepare, preparation piece. So I have like a pretty big checklist, quality checklist that I go through every time. Yeah. And when I, if I ever mess up, it's because I went too fast in that quality checklist and there's nothing special about it. I actually don't even use systems. I still kind of make it manual semi-intentionally, right? Just so I, like I, my human body has seen it and experienced it even down to like sending myself test emails. I make sure I look at them on my own device, right? Like I just want to experience, experience it myself. Um, yeah. So I go through that checklist and then I do it probably again because I'm sweating. And then at a certain point, you just got to send it out and move on to the next. Yeah. Uh, you're not testing on multiple devices. I've seen that be a, an email killer a couple different times where you know, it really could have been something special. And unfortunately that, that quality, uh, that quality check wasn't there. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you posted pretty recently that email can be a, a creative channel, like can be a super creative channel. What in your mind makes a really compelling creative email, whether that's a single email or a series of emails, what about it tells a story and shapes a narrative that's worth reading? Yeah, for me, the creativity actually doesn't come like when um, people think about creative, I think they think about like the storytelling, they think about the, um, I don't know, the visuals and like the video and stuff like that. When I think about email creativity, I I think of just the ability to be relevant. Like, Mm -hmm. I just think the, your access to data and information on each individual person is so far greater in that channel than any other channel you've got. And so what you choose to do with it is where the creativity really comes in. And there's, um, it can get you into bad places sometimes by overcomplicating things. And so, uh, but if you, 
don't at least pursue creatively thinking on how do I um, customize journeys based on where customers are at, both in terms of who they are as people and where they are in, say, their buying or product usage journey, mm-hmm. um, then it's just a disservice. And it's just like not, it, you could be doing so much more. So as an example, um, for a client recently, their onboarding was pretty linear in nature. And just like it, it encouraged usage of key features that make sense, like the, the the things that you need to do to get value from their application. But it there was a single track and we spent some time customizing it based on role. But it it how long was it? It was like it's over like the course of a couple of weeks, just initial onboarding. But there's no really regard for what they'd already done, right? Like so it's encouraging one action, two actions, three whether or not they'd already completed that action or not. And so from a relevant standpoint, if I sign up for a product and I'm, um, I get in there immediately and I start testing around and by three days later, if I get a note with a tutorial on how to do something that I did day one, well, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence that like I need to look at emails in the future, right? Like it's just like, Oh, I'm part of just some onboarding track that like, isn't going to help me. But uh, if on, in contrast, it's like, it sends me and it says, okay, it looks like you've gotten this far. Here's what's next. Then for those that open it, the relevance is just another level. That's the creative side that I think is really interesting. And so, um, you know, and then you work with the creative and the language and the copy imagery, whatever to there's that other creative side. But I think that's where the really fun, impactful creativity has to be for somebody like me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because it sort of mirrors that narrative you have to tell in terms of contextualizing data, like you talked about before, like contextualizing data on one end to your clients and the companies you're working with and contextualizing the relevance, right? This, this, uh, this uh, user journey, right? Making sure that you're in line with what their experiences, experiences, and then leading them in a way that's going to be helpful to that journey they've already experienced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like in social media, LinkedIn land, like everybody talks about personalization. Right. And it's all it's all good and well. It's all good. These are all right principles. The nitty gritty of like actually getting into what that looks like is um, difficult because it can get really complex um, enough that like either you build a lot of systems that nobody knows how to manage. Yeah. Or you just give up and then you don't do anything about it and everybody gets the same blanket slate and it just falls flat. So, um, yeah, there's a balance in there somewhere of, uh, and that's, and that's, that's what you have to do. I, I, I wouldn't say like there's a lot of testing, I guess there is, but, um, uh, just a lot of intentional work, right? Being intentional in like how you customize and personalize, but also intentional on in how you build something that scales is easy for other people to understand because you're going to leave someday and you want people to be able to come in and understand how it works so they can pick up off your work and do something greater. So, yeah. 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 Um, that's great. Do you, so I've, I've got one last question for you for we're at time here. Do you have 
a hot take in marketing? Uh, I this is an increasingly less hot take because I see it more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I probably got it from somebody else, but it rang true with me. Um, I think we overestimate uh, A/B testing, the impact of it. I think we waste a lot of time trying to do it, and um, there's other things we could be doing that are more important. I've I've done hundreds of like subject line A-B tests, right? Like, and even still on like bigger, like broadcasts or sends, I'll, I'll put something in place. Um, I swear 99% of them were not, there was no measurable outcome, right? Yeah. Better or worse. And, and so if I'm spending a lot of time trying to test for that stuff and then heaven forbid, like you're, you're doing that thing you're doing A-B testing, but you don't even have really the volume to merit like any sort of statistical significance, startups, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you need some really good volume to, to make tests worth it. Then um, you could probably just be doing better stuff, just other stuff that's more important. And uh, so A-B testing always looks and sounds good. Like you're trying to be intentional and, like there, I guess there is a world where um, tiny incremental improvements over the long run yield greater results. Like that. that's kind of like the whole point. But um, my gut says for small teams, there's there's just not as much of a place for that. And you should spend your time really trying to identify like a, what's going to get me what's going to get me 80% of the results for 20% of the work and AB tests just don't fit that kind of threshold. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that's a great take. That's something I, I agree. I've seen a few people start to surface it a little bit, but it's still, I think a pretty, a pretty spicy thing that a lot of people aren't willing to admit. Yeah. I mean, uh, if I, if I was, and granted that take two for context, I, I've always worked on small teams, right? Yeah. And I've worked on, um, which means you wear a lot of hats and you have to, you really do have to identify impact. If you're like a email marketing specialist where your role is to figure out the best subject lines and you're working for some massive company that has like 40 million people in their database, because it's a different story, right? That's the whole right. point of your job, right? Yeah. But if you're lean, I just think there's, there's more to be done elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. An incremental gain at that size becomes the difference of millions of dollars versus yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Well, uh, I appreciate you uh, joining us today, Michael. I'm just going to go ahead and sign off here. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Collective Wisdom. And thank you, Michael, for being our guest today. Really look forward to seeing the great work you continue to do as a demand gen leader. Uh, For those watching, if you're a demand marketer looking for a tight-knit community of demand gen experts, be sure to apply to our community, Demand Collective, at demandcollective.io. Thanks again, Michael, for chatting with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brian.